Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you here this morning. Welcome to Alpine Church. I just want to say again, if you happen to be here for the first time, we are so excited that you're here with us today. We hope you feel welcome. We hope that we're able to help you pursue God today. Uh, my name is John Bellis. I'm the lead pastor up at our Alpine Logan campus. And before we get into today's message, I just want to follow up on something we did last week. Last week, we prayed for peace in Ukraine. We prayed for the situation that's going on there. And as, as Pastor John just shared, I don't believe that the prayer gets us ready for the bigger thing. Prayer is the bigger thing. Because prayer is where we invite God in to do something that only God can do. But there is a way that we can help in addition to praying for that region. Uh, as many of you know, we have missionaries in Portugal, Logan and Abbey Shields, and they're going to be making trips to Poland, where they're going to be ministering to refugees there from Ukraine. They're going to be doing some medical supplies, things like that. And then they're also going to be transporting refugees back to Portugal if they have friends or family in Portugal. And so those trips obviously are going to be very expensive between renting vans and, and the supplies and fuel and all those kinds of things. So if you would like to give financially to support that ministry, you can just give to Alpine Church. And then just in the memo, put Ukraine on there. And we'll make sure that that's where the money gets allocated so that we can support them in that. So let's continue to pray for that region. And then if you're able to, let's give financially so that we can be the hands and feet of Jesus over there to those people. Well, I'm excited to be back in late night. You know, I only get down here about once every two months or so, but it's great to be back with you guys this morning. It's great to be in the second week of this prodigal series. We're digging into probably one of the most famous parables in all of the Bible, the parable of the prodigal son. And in this series, we're looking at the three main characters of the story, the younger son, the father, and the next week, we're going to look at the older brother. And last week, we introduced you to the big idea in this series, and that is this. If you are far from God, no matter how far, there is still hope for you. I truly believe that some of you are here today because you need to know that. You need to know that no matter how far you may have drifted, it is not too far for God to draw you back to himself. I think we have people listening to our online service right now who need to know you are not too far for God to draw you back to himself. That God's grace and forgiveness are bigger than any mistake that you have made. That he pursues you, that he is drawing you to himself. In fact, if you're here today, that is evidence that God is pursuing you. That is evidence that God is drawing you to himself. Now you might say, I'm only here today because my wife wanted me to be here. Or I'm only here today because my mom and dad said I didn't have a choice. But I would say that even through those circumstances, God is drawing you to himself today. In last week's message, we also introduced this idea of rule breakers and rule keepers. Hopefully you've had some good conversations with your small group or your family or your mentor about where you stand on that spectrum. Uh, I tend to be a rule keeper. Hopefully you've had that conversation with your kids. Now, if you're a parent of teenagers like I am, it's easy to assume they're all rule breakers, <laughs> but they're not. Some of our teenagers are rule keepers. And one of the things that we're talking about in this series is how both rule breakers and rule keepers can be far from God. There are a lot of rule keepers who are very far from God. I just want to quickly review with you the definition of prodigal. It's spending money or resources freely and recklessly, wastefully extravagant. 
You know, I, I grew up in the church, and so I grew up hearing this parable all the time. And honestly, it wasn't until about three years ago that I knew what prodigal meant. I always thought prodigal meant rebellious or wayward. And so we tend to think of only the younger son as being prodigal. But when we know the real definition of prodigal, when we see that part of it is being extravagant, we see that in a sense the father was also prodigal. Because the father loved his son with a reckless kind of love, with a very extravagant kind of love. So let's go ahead and jump in. We're going to begin in verses 1 and 2 of Luke 15. It says, Tax collectors and other notorious sinners, these are the rule breakers, often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law, the rule keepers, complain that he was associating with such sinful people and even eating with them. I think it's really interesting that just prior to chapter 15, if you go back to chapter 14, Jesus had just challenged his listeners to consider the cost of being a disciple. To recognize that there's a cost that comes with following Jesus. And chapter 15, in some of your translations, starts out with the word then. It says, then the tax collectors and other notorious sinners followed him came near to hear him teach, or in the NLT that we use, it says, often. See, Jesus' challenge about counting the cost and about following him didn't drive them away. It drew them in even more. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders didn't like it. They complained that Jesus would associate with such people, that how dare he actually eat with them. (laughs) See, he built a relationship with people. He didn't just teach them. I think that should be instructive to us as you and I are seeking to help people follow God, as we're seeking to help people pursue Jesus, that we need to get involved in their lives. We need to build relationships. See, the religious leaders of Jesus' time wouldn't dare to do that. They made a very clear distinction between the righteous and the unclean. And in fact, they prided themselves on not associating with the unclean. Some of the rabbis in Jesus' time took this to such an extreme, they wouldn't even teach the word of God to someone who is unclean. That is so unlike the heart of God. And that's what Jesus wants to correct in this parable. So that's going to bring us to the first thing that we learn about the Father through Jesus' teaching. And that's that the Father chases down those who are lost. Verses 3 and 4 in Luke 15, it says, So Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? So it's in response to the complaining of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that Jesus tells this story. And it starts out with the word so, right? So he told them this story. It's in direct response. And this parable is really directed at them. And like most parables, this story is something that everyone could have related to. Almost every one of Jesus' listeners would have had sheep. And if not, they would have at least known people or had family members who had sheep. And he tells the story in a way that it's almost common sense that the shepherd would go and find the one lost sheep. Right? He says, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness? It's kind of like Jesus saying, you know the answer. 
You know what he's going to do. You know he's going to leave the 99 to find that one that was lost. See, it's not that the lost sheep is any more valuable to the shepherd. But it's not any less valuable either. That lost sheep has just as much value as the 99 that are close to the shepherd. Jesus is trying to teach a spiritual truth here in a way that they can understand. So the Pharisees understood in the story that the lost sheep was just as valuable as the other 99. But they failed to see that the notorious sinners, the unclean, the unrighteous, are just as valuable to God as those who are close to Him. I'm so grateful that God searches for us. I'm so grateful that God pursues us. You know, we talk all the time about pursuing God at Alpine, but the only reason we can pursue God is because He first pursued us. Jesus said it in Luke 19.10. He said, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. He seeks. He takes initiative. He looks for us. Then Jesus tells a second parable to reinforce this idea of value and of seeking out the lost. Verse 8, he says, Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And this is another parable that everybody there could have related to, right? We've all lost something valuable. We all know what that feels like. Anybody else in here notice that the older you get, the more you tend to lose those valuable things? Anybody else struggling with that like I am? You know, when I'm trying to get out of the house, there are four things I have to have with me when I go. My keys, my phone, my laptop, and what's the other one? And my wallet. (laughs) I've got to have those four things when I leave. And so as I'm getting ready to leave, if I can only have three of them, I take the three that I have and I put them on the dining room table. That way I know exactly where they are. I know that they're safe. They've been found. And then I turn my full attention to finding the one that is lost. And then I asked my kids, have you seen it? Because I want to blame it on them, right? What would you guys do with my keys? Like they ever have my keys. It's not them. It's me. And then I turn the house upside down. I asked my wife to help me. I asked my kids to help me. And then unfortunately, more than once, they've been in my pocket, which is not good. It's a little disheartening. But see, in the parable, all ten coins were silver. The coin that was lost wasn't more valuable than the other nine, but it was just as valuable. Just like when I put those three things on the table, it's not that they're less valuable to me now. It's that I know where they are. I know that they're safe. I know that they're found. So now I can turn my attention to the one that's lost. Do you and I see people like that? Do we see people who are far from God just as valuable as the people who are near to God? Or do we look at them like the religious leaders did in their day? Do we look at people who've wandered far and maybe they're struggling with an addiction? Or maybe they've even faced criminal punishment. And do we recognize that they have immeasurable worth and value because they're created in the image of Almighty God? Okay, let's keep going. Jesus now gets to the actual parable of the prodigal son. He says, So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. So now we're back in the actual parable of the prodigal son. And we see that the the son has come back to his senses. He's coming home. And it says his father sees him from a long way off. Now, Scripture doesn't say this explicitly, so I just want to make sure you understand this is just my opinion. 
But I think the reason he saw him a long way off is I think every day, maybe multiple times a day, the father was scanning the horizon, hoping today would be the day his son came back, hoping that today would be the day he returned. And when he saw him, it says he was filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, he embraced him, and he kissed him. Now, there are several cultural implications that we could miss if we just passed over this, so I just want to bring out a couple. Number one, it was very rare for a grown man to run in that culture. It was taboo. They just didn't do it. One of the reasons is you would have to hike up your robe to really run fast, so it would bring dishonor to the father. The other thing we need to understand is when that younger son took his inheritance and left, he brought shame on the whole family. It didn't just affect him. So the father, the older brother even, all were in a sense dishonored. Now we don't really live in a shame and honor culture here, so it's kind of hard for us to get our heads around, but that's exactly what it would have been like. And then third and finally, the younger son, we know from last week that he worked with pigs. That would have made him ceremonially unclean. Now we don't know exactly how far away he traveled and how long it took him to come back to his father, so we can't say for sure if if he was still ceremonially unclean, but there's a good chance that he was. And so that means when the father ran and hugged him and kissed him, that he became unclean, which would have been horrible for a devout Jew. But the father didn't care. The father's love was reckless, and he was willing to become unclean for his son. And I love that the father ran to him. He didn't wait and make the son come all the way to him. Now, there was repentance before the father ran to him. If you look at the story, there was repentance before the father ran. We looked at it last week. There are a couple of words the Bible uses over and over for repentance. One is a Greek word called metanoia, which most literally means a changing of the mind. And the other word means to turn a 180, to go the complete opposite direction. And we see the son did both of that. In the parable, it says that he came to his senses. He had a changing of the mind. And then he turned 180 degrees and went back the way that he came. The son had repentance. See, the father didn't go and pull him out of the pig pen. God pursues. God seeks. But God doesn't force. It's the same with us. God pursues you. God seeks you. But God's not going to force you. But when we come to our senses, when we repent and we turn that 180, we see that the father is running recklessly to embrace us. What a beautiful picture. I recognize this parable might be really difficult for some of you. Because some of you may have been a prodigal son or daughter. And maybe you've made some decisions that alienated you from your parents. And maybe you've repented and maybe you've turned that 180, but they haven't come running. They haven't embraced you. They haven't forgiven you. And I would just want you to know that God grieves with you and God grieves for you in that situation. And I would encourage you to keep praying for them. Keep praying that God would soften their hearts. Keep honoring them in the way you talk to them, if you're communicating with them, and the way you talk about them. Or maybe you're on the other side of that. Maybe you're a parent and you have a prodigal who's wandered away and you've been scanning the horizon day after day and they haven't returned. And I would just say again, God grieves with you and God grieves for you. And I can't promise you that you'll be reconciled to them. I don't see that promise in scripture but I can promise you that God is with you and that he is sufficient 
and he'll bring you through it. Let's take a a look at a second point about the Father. The Father responds with joy when a sinner repents. So now we're going back to the story about the sheep. He says, and when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. And when he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. Look at the father's attitude when he finds the sheep. It's so like my attitude would be when I finally found that sheep, I can tell you that. He doesn't gripe and complain about how stupid the sheep was to get lost. He doesn't talk about all the time he wasted trying to find the sheep. He doesn't guide it back to the flock, hitting him with a staff along the way. It says that he joyfully carries it home on his shoulders. When Jesus finds his people, he carries them. See, often when we've gotten lost and we've wandered away, we are at our worst. We're at our lowest. We have guilt. We have shame. We're overwhelmed with it. We don't have a sense of direction because we haven't been led by the Spirit of God. We're malnourished because we haven't been feeding on the Word of God. We don't have any stamina or endurance because we haven't been built up by the people of God. And so the Good Shepherd picks us up, throws us on His shoulders, and lovingly carries us back to the flock. What an amazing Savior we serve. And then when He brings us back home, He celebrates we see this kind of theme of celebration in the second parable too. So this is back to the lady who finds the coin. It says, and when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. Again, we see rejoicing because the lost has been found. And other people get invited to be a part of the party. Just like God invites all of us as believers to be a part of the party when someone is found. I love it that he says, in the same way there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. It's like a big party in heaven every time somebody comes to Jesus. See, the culture of heaven is to celebrate every time God's kingdom grows, even if it only grows by one person. Man, I hope Alpine Church has that same culture. (laughs) I hope that you celebrate. I hope that you rejoice when even one person comes to Jesus, no matter what their backstory is. No matter how far from God they may have wondered. I really sense that we are in a season of harvest right now. I've lived in Utah for over 30 years. And I remember many, many years where I would only meet one or two people in a full year who had come to know Jesus. I talk to people almost every week now who have come to know the biblical Jesus God is doing something here in Utah, and you and I are privileged to be a part of it. I hope that gets you excited. I hope that makes you want to rejoice when people that you know come to Jesus. I want to cover one last point about how the father responds when his son comes home. And that's that the father is recklessly extravagant toward his children. Luke 15, 22 through 24. So the son has come back, he's embraced him, and the father said to the servants, Quick! Bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf that we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for the son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. I want to read some commentary to you on this verse. 
I think this will help us kind of get an understanding of what was going on culturally. It says the best robe in the house would have belonged to the father himself. The ring would probably be a family signet ring. And it would symbolize reinstatement to sonship in a well-to-do house. Slaves or impoverished workers often did not wear sandals, though as here, they carried and tied a master's sandals. And the father is saying, nope, I won't receive you back as a servant. I'll only receive you as a son. You read this part of the story, and if you grew up with a dad who was an extravagant giver, it probably brings back some good memories. probably brings a smile to your face. You know, I was fortunate enough to have a dad like that. My dad passed away about two weeks ago, and I did the service last Saturday. And one of the things that I shared during that service was how much I learned from my dad. And one of the things he taught me was to be an extravagant giver. And I shared a story of when I was in fifth grade, we lived in this little hick town in Florida called Wachula, and we were dirt poor. We basically lived in a house that someone from our church had donated for us to, to rent, to, to live in. It was run down at night. I remember you'd, you'd be sleeping and you could hear the mice running in the attic. I mean, it was, it was tough times. We had a lot of government cheese and a lot of rice in those days. And I was old enough to know that times were tough and we didn't have any money. And I knew that Christmas probably would be fairly bleak as far as gifts. And I remember going down on Christmas Day and looking under the tree. <clears throat> Excuse me. And seeing three new bikes. One for me, one for my oldest sister, my next sister, and then a tricycle for my youngest sister. I don't know who my dad begged, borrowed, or stole from to get those, but I'll never forget what an extravagant gift giver he was. It blew our minds. We didn't expect anything like it. And the father in the parable is an even more extravagant gift giver. He had the finest robe brought in, basically his own robe. He had a ring brought in and put it on his finger he held a feast in his honor. We see the heart of the father as he rejoices over his son. As he says, the son of mine was lost, but now he's found. He was dead, but now he's been brought back to life. See, I fully believe that when the younger son left, the father never expected to see him again. The father had no idea of knowing if he was still alive or if he was truly dead. You couldn't just Skype or FaceTime or get on a Google Meet back then. You couldn't hop in a car or jump on a plane. So for all intents and purposes, the father thought his son was dead. I'm sure the father knew he was going to squander his wealth. Right? Anyone who's too impatient to wait until the proper time probably has self-control issues. The father knew the son was going to squander the money. And so in a real sense, the son came back from the dead. There's also a spiritual application for us when we come to the father through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.1 says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But then in Ephesians 2.4 and 5 it says, But because of His great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in our sins. It's by grace that you have been saved. It's the extravagant gift of God the Father. His grace through the, work of the, through the redemptive work of Christ on the cross that you and I have brought from death back to life. So you might have a story way cooler than my Christmas bicycle story about how your dad was extravagant. Or maybe you weren't blessed with a dad who was an extravagant giver. But any story pales in comparison to the extravagance that we see at the cross. That God in His extravagant love for you would send His Son 
to live the perfect life that you and I can never live. To go to the cross and pay for our sins. And when we have that 180, when we come to our senses and say, God, I'm a sinner. I'm broken and I can't do this on my own. And when we turn and we say, Jesus, I want to follow you. And I'm only worthy to be your servant. I don't even really deserve to be your servant. But would you take me as your servant? God says, I won't take you as my servant. I'll take you as my son or daughter. John 1.12 says, But to all who believed in him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. Now we are slaves to Christ. We are slaves to Christ. We're voluntary slaves to Christ. We're bondservants. We say, Jesus, I want to be your slave. God says, well, you're not just my slave. You're my son or daughter now. I love how that mirrors the story of the prodigal. We come to the father and we confess that we've sinned against him just like the son did to his father. And the father throws his arms around us and he kisses us and he calls us his child. We were dead, but now we're alive. <laughs> and God rejoices over that. Now, my, my peanut brain doesn't really comprehend how God rejoices when someone comes to him because he's not surprised. <laughs> he's omniscient. He already knew we were going to come to him. But the Bible says he rejoices over that. There are other places where the Bible says he rejoices over you. Isaiah 62.5, Zephaniah 3.17. And if you have any questions about this God who rejoices over you, who pursues you, we would love to answer those questions after the service. We'd love to pray with you because that's the God that we serve. I want to wrap up with one last passage. This is Psalm 103. This is a Psalm of David. David writes, The Lord is compassionate and merciful slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse us nor remain angry forever. He does not punish us for all of our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love towards those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far as from us as the east is from the west. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. Who better to sing of God's compassion and mercy than David? <laughs> David had certainly experienced God's mercy, his forgiveness, his restoration. He'd also experienced his anger. And notice the psalm doesn't say that God doesn't get angry. It says he is slow to anger. God is so patient with us. And his anger doesn't last. See, David recognized that we deserve to be treated much more harshly for our sins than we are. And I love how he talks about how his unfailing love is as great as the height is from the heavens to the earth. I think so often we underestimate the love of God for us. I think that's why Paul prayed often that I hope that you'll come to understand the width, the height, the depth, the length of God's great love for you. David talks about the magnitude of God's forgiveness and says he removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. Here's what one commentary says about that. It says, As the east and west can never meet in one point, but be forever at the same distance from each other, so our sins and their decreed punishment are removed to an eternal distance by His mercy. That is the God who loves you extravagantly. That is the God who searches the horizon for you. That is the God who longs to embrace you and put His arms around you. That is the God we worship and that is the God we serve, a God who loves us with extravagance. And so my challenge for you, my challenge for me as we leave here is that we would love extravagantly, that we would love God extravagantly, 
that we would love each other extravagantly, and that we would love the lost sheep extravagantly.